This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotny. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week, we've got a great show for episode number 551. We've got Dr. Lauren Tessier. Uh, she is uh, with Life After Mold is the name of her practice. And also, she's the, I believe, vice president of the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness, the ISEAI. Please check out our Facebook page and YouTube pages. Leave a comment, like, or subscribe. You can also sign up for the weekly show announcement right on the iaqradio.com website. We also have continuing education credits available. If you email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, we'll get you a quiz out and you can get some continuing ed for ACAC, IICRC. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to both Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, and John Lapotere, IAQ Solutions in Orlando, Florida, for combining answers to correctly uh, answer last week's trivia question. The answer was the term lobbying, and they identified it as going back to the 1640s when the lobbies of the chambers of the British Parliament were a hotbed for political wrangling. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, June 21, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's trivia question. Name the ancient physician who was first to separate medicine from superstition and religion to establish it as a science based on observation and case recording. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, today's guest is Dr. Lauren Tessier. She is a naturopathic physician licensed by the state of Vermont. Her practice, Life After Mold, uses a patient-centered approach to help those suffering from mold-related illness. Her approach is informed by naturopathic medical education in combination with functional and integrative medicine. These tools allow her to truly address the entire person who establishes care with her. Uh, Dr. Tessier is also the Vice President of the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. The ISEAI is a nonprofit professional medical society that aims to raise awareness of environmental causes of inflammatory illness and to support the recovery of individuals affected by these illnesses through the integration of clinical practice, education, and research. Hello, Dr. Tessier. We have you on the line. 
Good afternoon. How are you? I'm fantastic. Welcome to IAQ Radio. I, I enjoyed talking with you earlier this week, and I think we're going to have a very interesting uh, interview here. I kind of like to start with um, if you could tell listeners a little bit about your practice and, and how you, I thought it was an interesting story, how you ended up focusing on environmentally acquired illness. Sure. Great question. So um, I moved to uh, Vermont back in, oh my gosh, 2013 now. And as I was working with folks here, um, started to realize a lot of the more naturopathic approaches and even the traditional Western medicine approaches to um, treating some stuff just get really, really sticky and really, really difficult. Um, had a lot of people non-responsive to treatment, which, you know, when you're a new doc out, it's really frustrating and concerning and confusing, and you bend over backwards to really want to do everything for folks. So um, at that time, I had someone who had mentioned that they had um, some mold in their home. And after that, it kind of just opened up the floodgates of digging into um, education revolving around mold and just learning as much as I possibly could. So um, now here we are six years later and mold is all that I do. So, well, more than mold, but it's kind of the, the bigger picture of what I do. Um, moved away from primary care and there's such a huge niche that's required here. So, Well, was there like a, some kind of flooding or something that, that, that led yep. you? <laughs> so I, oh. uh, here in Waterbury, we had a flood, I believe, in the 1920s, and then we had another one in 2011 with Hurricane Irene, um, and Hurricane Irene just decimated a lot of Vermont, just up and down the state, um, maybe some surrounding states, too. Um, so we had some pretty serious flooding, and you know, people up and down Main Street here in Waterbury just poured out of their homes. Um, you can see some of the pictures someday, you know, I'll share some of them, but a lot of parts of Waterbury were, were underground and even now certain parts of Waterbury are still in flood areas and um, because of the environmental impact of no longer like dredging the rivers and kind of keeping them nice and deep in the center um, you know it it wouldn't surprise me if it happened again at some time soon like last night with our severe rains we hit pre-flood stage pretty quick we gained nine feet in the Winooski River um, over the span of about four hours so um, like water here. Well, you know, have you ever had uh, a personal experience with mold issues in your home or is that? Yeah. So there's, there's a few different experiences that I've had with personal issues with mold. Um, you know, we are technically undergoing a remediation of my own home right now, um, hmm. which is always an exciting feat. Um, thankfully we've had a successful remediation and now we're just moving on to kind of the reconstruction and drywall and kind of making the home a home again. Um, I've had personal experiences with the brain fog, the dizziness, you know, the, the severe allergies, histamine response. Um, and then I also have a family member who, uh, when I was younger and in my teens, lived in a um, basement floor apartment and um, had succumbed to something called Wegener's granulomatosis, which is a uh, chronic inflammatory autoimmune condition um, where the vasculature is just completely, you know, attacked and degraded and broken down, presents really severe rashes, um, a lot of bleeding, and uh, turned out that when we went in to kind of tidy up the home when they were in the hospital the first time, there was a good amount of mold in the space 
And it had just been something that kind of stuck in the back of my head, even since I was a teen of, you know, I wonder if there's a connection here between something as serious as a chronic autoimmune condition and, um, you know, mold and long-term exposure to mold. So, um, you know, that's kind of the, the heartstring story that, you know, at times I bring to the surface. It's, you know, a little private. I care deeply about my uncle and unfortunately we lost him quite a few years ago now, but he was uh, in his fifties, must've been in his early fifties. Um, and they didn't know what the cause was. And usually with this chronic inflammatory picture that a lot of people that I see are diagnosed with. They, they don't know what the etiology is, but once you clean up the environment and pull out all those inflammagens, people really start to get better. So that's kind of been the thing that spurs me forward with wanting to learn more and really wanting to help as many people as possible. Okay. John, that volumes, did you work on that? It sounds pretty good now. A little bit in and out. No problem. Okay, great. Um, you're a naturopathic doctor. I wonder if you could tell folks a little bit about I mentioned uh, in the show announcement, we put where you got your undergrad and so forth. But I wonder if you could tell people a little bit more about how you become a naturopathic doctor. And I appreciate the opportunity to do so because I think there's a lot of um, concerns and curiosities about naturopathic education out there right now. And that's really because we're not licensed federally. We're licensed state to state. So currently we're licensed in 23 states in the U.S., including um, not including the U.S. territories of Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So there are specific states with their own scopes of practice where we are licensed. What ends up happening in those states where we're not licensed are... Um, People can go and they can do a essentially a mail-away program that takes about six weeks, and they can call themselves naturopaths. So we have people who are very thoroughly trained at a four-year uh, doctoral-level, federally accredited schools, and then we have people who do a six-week mail-away. And if you happen to live in an unlicensed state, you don't know the difference between a naturopathic physician or just a naturopath until you ask and until you dig. So I always encourage people to really, you know, buckle down and ask their providers how they were trained because in the state of Vermont, I have full prescriptive rights and I have the availability to order labs, send people for referrals, but in an unlicensed state, I don't have that availability and really anyone can pose as a naturopathic physician. You were your undergrad is from the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy in Boston, but then you went to uh, I can't Bastyr. Um, yep, Bastyr University. Bastyr University in Kenmore, Washington. So how long did you have to go to Bastyr to get the the ND? So Bastyr was a, a four year program. Okay, so mm -hmm. you're a total of eight years, and similar to any other physician, I guess. Yeah. Uh, do you have to do a um, what do they call it? Uh, the the, the, uh, yeah, residence. Yeah, so residencies are available, but because we are not practitioners who are going to specialize in surgery and really high level of interventional things, um, we they aren't mandatory and they're not required. So um, the training is thorough enough and formal enough um, to kind of get people out there to hang their shingle, take good care of people very thoroughly. Um, but residencies are not a formal part of our education. Nice I've got a question for you in Go terms ahead. of the licensing and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, do insurance companies pay for your services in your state? Great so question. It, 
That's a super question, Cliff. So it depends on state to state. Um, I know that states like Washington, uh, Oregon, Arizona, Vermont, I think even like New Hampshire, Maine, some of the licensed states, the insurance companies will will cover people um, for a naturopathic practice. It's also dependent on whether or not people are opting to take insurance, which is, you know, a big, long discussion to double-edged sword, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't want to do the whole interview on this, but I find this fascinating. Now, I'm. I'm just curious. Um, you're able to write prescriptions, and and I'm wondering um, if, if you could explain for listeners. You do use traditional medicine, and then you also use some some naturopathic. I guess you would use some herbs or you know different types of supplements for people. Is that accurate? It's accurate, and there's a time and place for everything. So that's something I want to be very clear about. In our naturopathic training, we are um, educated in the traditional medicine realm, like the allopathic realm is what we call it, and then in naturopathic um, philosophy. So, you know, working with herbs, sometimes working with homeopathy, um, there are different tools that people usually navigate to more than another um, because I am so uh, biochemically based and I really like understanding in the ins and outs of biochemistry. I tend to operate a little bit more from um, the supplement aspect of things where you're, you know, resupplying specific nutrients to get certain enzymes going or to try to push on different hormone pathways. Um, I don't do herbs as much. I do use them in the practice, but yeah. Um, but as I was saying, there's a time and place for everything. So I think that that's the important misconception that people have about naturopaths. I think people just assume that we just do herbs and we just do homeopathy and that's it. But the reality is we understand the different interventions and the different approaches that need to be considered in a case. Well, and I, I think m many medications come from uh, natural sources, don't they? They do. A lot of the medications out there, even including like mold and mycotoxins, right? A lot of those isolates are turned into pharmaceuticals. So, um, yeah, I think the, the big thing that sets it apart is that when you're working with herbal medicine, there's a certain synergy of using the whole plant. So not only do you have like the one thing that might help lower cholesterol, but then perhaps you have some antioxidants in the plants and other things that have a synergistic effect. Interesting. All right, let's let's move on a little more to the, the mold topic. I know that, um, you know, I know you're aware we've had Dr. Shoemaker on the show many times. He... <laughs> Uh, coined the term um, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, Sears. And um, our listeners are very familiar with his protocol. And as I understand it, you give him a great deal of credit for the work he's done over the years and, and you follow some of his protocol. Um, you have, however, your own twist on how you treat people that may have been exposed to water damaged buildings. I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about how you diagnose patients and and maybe how it's a little different from the traditional shoemaker uh, physician might diagnose patients. Sure. And I think that um, it's, it's a very good point to make note that I, I do appreciate the work that Dr. Shoemaker has done and, you know, developing the concept of chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which in my experience actually expands far outside the realm of just mold and, you know, the, the biotoxins from fisteria and algae blooms, that chronic inflammatory response syndrome of people getting stuck in that inflammatory state, but just won't go away and won't give up, I think is really the, um, the main health issue right now of our time. 
because we've been bombarded with so many low-level issues, you know, from pollution to now indoor air quality to food quality to all these things, I think that uh, the, the disease state of now the, the 21st century is really um, that chronic inflammation. So we owe him a lot. And in a lot of my clients who were coming in, at first, the first thing I was doing was ruling out chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And as you know, um, those labs are very expensive. And a lot of those lab parameters do overlap with quite a few other disease states. So it's very important to do the workup and the rollout. But what I found was there are a lot of people who are still just coming in with other issues regarding mold that weren't that worst case scenario of SIRS. So in my work with people, I've learned to really rule out the low-hanging fruit because I find that it is more uh, prudent with regards to time and more prudent with regards to financing. So when I work with people, I'm taking into consideration, is this a frank mycotoxicosis? So are they having a toxic picture from the mycotoxins? Is it a frank allergy to mold? Is it a true infection of a fungus? Or is it SIRS, which can unfortunately overlap with all of those. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, so I, I do a low-hanging fruit first pass usually with folks. And so, um, you know, mycotoxicosis is usually the first thing that I work with for folks. See how they do after that and then kind of double back and see if there still needs to be some clinical improvement with how they're feeling. Then we really dig a little bit deeper with regards to um, is there an infection there? Is there a colonization address that if we're still not better then really start considering SIRS. And this all goes hand in hand too with what else is happening in their body. Are they a diabetic? Do we need to worry about that? Do they have uh, chronic Lyme? Do they have chronic Epstein-Barr virus? So um, it's a very multi-pronged approach that I take a lot of careful consideration for. And I also make sure that I allow the patient to inform the case too. Um, Patients have a lot to give when it comes to giving feedback about their body, how they're feeling, and physicians really need to work to listen to that. And even from the IAQ realm, our IEPs also need to learn to really honor that and understand that if someone says they're sick or they're lightheaded when they walk into a space, we need to hear that and we need to figure out what's going on there. When you, you mentioned mycotoxicosis a few times, I wonder if you could kind of break down what that is and how that may be different from Sears. It sounded to me like that's a separate, although they could overlap, like you said, but, but oftentimes that may be a, a separate condition. Right. So that's another great question. So with any type of toxic exposure, the body's going to have a certain buildup and it's going to hit its kind of point of um, disease expression. You'd call it a point of no return. We can fill our cup only so much with exposure after exposure after exposure. And after a certain part, we kind of just start to, to spit out symptoms. So with mycotoxicosis, what I tend to see is a lot more neurological components first, um, brain fog, fatigue, dizziness, uh, photophobia, so light sensitivity. Um, and working with mycotoxins from a toxic perspective is making sure that you remember that they are VOCs. They are volatile organic compounds. So you treat them almost similarly to almost any other VOC exposure. So, you know, we know if we're around too much benzene in, in, in an 
uh, environment, we're going to get benzene toxic. If we're around too much, you know, uh, gasoline or some of these things, your body can go toxic. If you're around too much lead, you go toxic. So you hit this point where your body starts expressing it. So the major goal with addressing mycotoxicosis, like any other toxic um, issue, is to get the body to detox and get the body to um, push out uh, the mycotoxins from the system. And I guess to some degree, it's getting the body to respond naturally. I mean, that's what, isn't that what we would do normally, naturally, if we weren't, um, maybe you mentioned some of these other issues that people have, diabetes, et cetera. Am I, am I understanding that right? Yeah. I mean, the body's defense mechanism is to detox, right? Um, we have lots of different systems in our body that we detox through. We have our skin, we have our lungs, our breath, uh, we have our kidneys, we have our liver, we have our GI tract. So there are plenty of people, though, when they go toxic, they start to shut down the things, the very things that your body depends on to detox. So a perfect example here um, is that mycotoxins degrade glutathione. They actually, which is an antioxidant that's required for detoxification in the body. So there's this feed forward mechanism with mycotoxins where they almost protect themselves from being detoxified. And that's just one way that they do it. There's quite a few other ways, including something called NRF2, if anyone wants to go nerd out and read up on some stuff. Um, but there's a lot of kind of self-protective mechanisms um, that these toxins have that really get in the way of being detoxed. So there's this very cautious kind of step-by-step -step approach when we're working on detoxing these people of how do we gently start the process? How do we supplement them with any type of nutrients that they need that might help move the process along? And then because we're pushing these toxins through these different systems to get it out, how do we protect these systems on the way out? So how do we protect the gut when we're dumping mycotoxins into the bile? So it's, it can be a lot more complex than, um, you know, at, at first you believe to believe, but yeah, the, our body should be doing this on our own. Okay. Uh, let me, uh, Cliff, before I go further, is, did you have any follow-ups? Yeah, I, I did. Um, Lauren, where's the, where's the best um, information on this? Is, is this uh, practiced at a higher level in Europe? Is this practiced at a higher level in Asia? Is this practiced at a higher level in the United States? You know, where's the world leader uh, you know, for this information? Where are they at? That's a really good question. Um, we, there's a lot of phenomenal uh, medicine being practiced in Germany and Sweden right now, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, they have a very, very large scope and a lot of availability to um, treat things more in depth. Um, and they're allowed to do a little bit more research um, with less... I don't want to say less stringent regulation, um, but uh, more open-minded approaches. Maybe Here more in the flexible regulation? What was that? Maybe more flexible regulation? Maybe more flexible regulation is, is, is the idea. I think that um, there's more of a, a, a warmer welcome to thinking outside the box in medicine in those countries. Um, you know, here in the U.S., we do have some really phenomenal um, practitioners that are kind of scattered all over 
the country. Um, when it comes to one person in particular who's really leading the way, um, that's really, really hard to pin down um, because we, we each bring something different to the table. Um, for instance, Jeanette Hope, She's based out of California. Um, she was one of the first people that I really got started on the, the glutathione mycotoxin realm with. Dr. Jim Brewer. He's another person that's done a lot of work with uh, fungal colonization and antifungals, you know. And then we have um, Mary Ackerley, who's doing a great amount of Marcon's work, uh, brain MRIs, and the psychiatric implications of mold. So there's there's quite a few of us kind of spread out, and that's really why ICI was formed, was because there's no real one answer out there, especially in these really complex cases. So we're working on coming together and bringing the greatest minds together, so that way we can really work to put together a training program for IEPs and other clinicians who are interested in expanding their knowledge. You mentioned ICI, and I just want to point out to listeners, that's the part of the title of this week's show is the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. I finally realized why you call it ICI here. <laughs> it's I-S-E-A-I. Um, it took me a minute to, to catch on. Sometimes I'm not as quick as I would like to be. Once but, it flows uh, off the tongue, it flows off the tongue, and you don't stop and you don't look back. But, yeah, there's definitely that initial I-S-E-A-I. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was looking for the C in there, and it wasn't there. <laughs> but anyway, we're going to come back to that organization in a little bit. Um, but, but before we do, how, how is your treatment like similar to, similar to and different from the typical um, Sears-certified uh, physician's treatment plan? Mm -hmm. So I think the, the traditional realm of Sears or Sears still – different pronunciations of it. Um, it is very much using off-label uses of drugs um, to try to get the, the impact of adjusting some of these inflammatory markers. So for some people who might not know out there, chronic inflammatory response syndrome is really diagnosed by clinical picture, of course, but then what inflammatory markers are coming to the surface that we're really seeing. So then the treatment protocol, um, as per Dr. Shoemaker, is to move through a step-by-step -step approach and direct um, treatment towards each different inflammatory parameter, step by step by step by step. And each one of these steps has some type of um, medication that's affiliated with it. Um, you know, initially you're doing CSM and well call potentially as a binder. Um, and then you're moving into uh, using omega-3 fatty acids to help address MMP9. And then eventually you move to a realm where you're using Actos as an off-label use, which unfortunately has a black box for, for bladder cancer, you know? Um, and then as you move forward, you're using other uh, fluid balancing um, drugs to try to balance out your ADH and your osmolality. And so even though I have the ability to prescribe these things, it, it doesn't jive with me to use something that might risk something for folks. So something that I have been doing on my own is going into the research and pulling mostly animal studies, to be honest, um, but that's where a lot of this research starts. Um, pulling studies or human studies with a incidental finding, because that's also where a lot of this research starts, of different herbs 
that are used to modify some of these inflammatory markers. So if you do some digging, you see that green tea is really impactful. You see that curcumin is really impactful, resveratrol, um, berberine. So a lot of things that are, are pretty, very, very safe um, and readily usable can really help dampen that inflammatory cascade. When you mentioned CSM, what, what does that stand for? Thank you. Uh, CSM is for uh, cholestyramine. So it's a, a powdered resin. Um, that is what we call bile acid sequestrant. It was used in the past to cling to bile coming out of the gallbladder and the liver. And by doing that, we were lowering cholesterol. Of course, better cholesterol drugs came to the forefront, our statins, um, which are incidentally fungal derived. So CSM kind of got, got the back burner, but we... Dr. Shoemaker kind of came to understand that CSM could be used, cholesterol, as a binder to help pull things um, out of, out of uh, our bile acids and bind up mycotoxins and pull them out of the body. But some people don't respond well to, to CSM. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. CSM can be really, really rough. Uh, according to the Shoemaker protocol, you're looking at four grams, four times per day. And CSM, because of its resin nature, I almost tell people it almost has like a staticky cling to it. Like, like picture ground up styrofoam and then mix it into water. That's what you're more or less dealing with when it comes to cholestyramine. So it's hard to get down. It can be really drawing on the throat. And then we find that there are some folks are very, very sensitive to it. And you know, from the uh, Shoemaker Protocol standpoint, we usually see constipation. We think of constipation as a side effect, but because CSM doesn't leave the gut, it stays in the gut, it doesn't go into the bloodstream, how could it be causing these, you know, big nasty reactions? Um, and the reality is it does, and the reality is CSM is not for everyone. Um, so it's a very gentle approach and thoughtful approach we need to take um, when we're suggesting different binders to folks. The other CSM option, CSM's cousin, is uh, Wellcall, which incidentally just went generic, I think, back in November. So it's available um, a lot cheaper now, and it's very much better tolerated than CSM. Okay. And is there an, uh, another uh, substitute you use? Is that maybe something like the, uh, uh, the green tea or one of the other options you mentioned? Does any of those help? So uh, there's a few different realms when you're dealing with treating mold and mycotoxin illness. You need a binder, something that's going to pass the area of the gut where the liver and the gallbladder empty out because that's where we dump a lot of our toxins. And then you also need your kind of antioxidants and your inflammatory modulators. Those two things are two different realms. So your binders, um, and these are going to ring bells for people are like charcoal, clay, um, CSM, well call. There's even been some research that okra isn't too bad of a binder, which is kind of fun. Um, and then from the other realm, when I was kind of rattling off the herbs before, those are specifically things that help dampen down that inflammatory response. I see. Okay. Very good. Cliff, anything you'd like to add? No, nope. uh, close to halftime, Jim. Oh, okay. 
Um, it is very close. Let's, why don't we do this? Uh, let's go. I, I didn't really, that went fast. Um, <laughs> faster than I'm used to. Uh, we'll be back. We're going to st- stop for 90 seconds. Thank our sponsors. We'll be back with Dr. Lauren Tussier, uh, Life After Mold, and the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness, ICI. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Lauren Tessier. What I'd like to do, doctor, is um, this the start of this second half, I want to talk a little bit about the role of IEPs, indoor environmental professionals. You, you mentioned um, that the IC, ICI uh, was interested in working with the IEPs, and we'll talk more about that later. But let's start first with your take on IEPs. What, what do you recommend to your patients to find a good indoor environmental professional to help with assessing the condition in their home? That is another great question. Um, you know, I have my experience and what I have um, been told and directed that has been helpful to my clients. I typically start people um, with the ACA and looking for people who have been potentially around the longest and maybe with the most certifications. Um, I think that the other thing that is really important is um, reminding patients that if you find an IEP who will actually talk to you for, you know, five minutes before getting you scheduled um, and will help kind of answer your questions and help understand if they are a good fit for you and vice versa, that's probably a good sign Um, because communication with IEPs is really a big component of it. Um, The other thing now, since ICI has been inviting IEPs to join us, is I'll often send people to the ICI website to find an IEP that's locally to them. I see. Okay. And what do you, I mean, what do you tell them these people should be doing? What should they be watching for? Um, you know, how, how do you suggest they assess a home? 
how I suggest IEPs assess a home. Right. I mean, you tell them they should be doing X, Y, and Z. Is that yeah. something? So, I, you know, here's, here's the thing is I don't, I don't enjoy stepping on toes. I don't like telling people how to do their job. And I um, put a lot of faith um, in people's well intentions. With that being said, I do direct my clients to ask the IEP if they bring, you know, the simple tools, a particle counter, a hygrometer, a um, thermal cam. Um, and what was that? Moisture meters. Moisture meters. Yeah, yeah, and they do a really kind of thorough, thorough investigation. I tell people if someone comes in and they do a visual inspection and they say, oh, there's no water staining, smells fine, you're all set, That's, that doesn't suffice. That doesn't suffice by any means. Because as you know, you know, you can have in-wall issues. You know, mycotoxins are small enough to diffuse through the drywall. Um, you know, a, a sweating pipe in between two pieces of drywall can wreak havoc and cause lots of issues. And a lot of these houses that have been um, mold exposed or have had water damaged or apartments or different living spaces, you know, people go in, guess what? They paint over them, they light a candle, and then your visual and your smell inspection is, is nothing. It's all for naught. So um, I really remind my clients to have a dialogue with IEPs, make sure that they're bringing tools, um, ask them if they're willing to do in-wall samples um, for their air, um, their air trap, their spore traps, um, and also ask them to, you know, see if they're willing to test in different areas. Because I think that spore trap testing is great, but there's really something to understanding the clinical question that you're asking. It's one thing to drop a spore trap and, you know, start the vacuum in a room where there's no mold exposure. And meanwhile, two doors down, it's horrible. And it's something that gets missed. So I think that having an IEP that can really ask the questions that allows them to then do the proper testing is really important. Now, within the, the realm here of IAQ Radio, IEPs and uh, listeners, uh, ERMI is quite controversial. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you do recommend ERMI, or is that something that uh, you recommend? And how, what has your experience been? Has it been um, enlightening? Uh, has it helped you with your patients? And then, um, you know, if, if, they can't afford or don't want to get an IEP, do you ever suggest they do their own ERMI uh, score? Okay, lots of different questions. Gonna give Sorry. as much information as I can about it. So with the ERMI, it, I understand that it is not ideal. You know, the IEP that I work with um, has very much educated on me on the fact that it's an archeological dig. You're looking for stuff that was once in the air. It's no longer in the air. And I pushed back and I said, well, if it was once in the air, it came from somewhere. So, you know, that could let us know that there was a historical exposure here that could be important for the case. So I understand the downfalls of ERMI without a doubt. And I understand that, you know, it's not recognized. And to be frank with you, I also feel that an ERMI less than two is completely arbitrary. There are times where I have had people in an ERMI of four recover beautifully because the mold that they're most reactive to 
wasn't in that elevated ERMI. I have had people who can't tolerate an ERMI of one because if you look, their um, group two group of molds was so high that it totally negated the group one group of molds. So when you're working with ERMIs, you know, I remind people that it's not just the number, it's it's logic. You need to approach it from a logical standpoint. I'm going to be a lot better with an ERMI of like a four for someone who's recovering if I'm not seeing Stachy, if I'm not seeing Willemia, if I'm not seeing Niger and Fumigatus. You know, um, there's a, a bit more wiggle room once logic is provided. Okay. I like that. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting take on it. And, and I, I, I'm not saying practitioners don't use PCR. They don't so essentially PCR um, polymerase chain reaction is used to, to get that ERMI score. And um, PCR certainly has its uses. And it sounds like that's the way you're using it, not necessarily relying on the score, but looking at the individual uh, results for different types of, of mold. Exactly. And I think that you and I have mentioned this before. Dogmatism will always get you in trouble. <laughs> I have had people looking for apartments for years, years, and haven't been able to start treatment because they haven't found an ERMI of one or lower. Like, you need to have some flexibility. If you come in with an ERMI of 25, I'm probably going to be like, oh, probably not. Probably not a good idea. But, you know, if I had my way, I would love to see um, you know, MSQ PCR somehow with, you know, in-wall sampling or air testing. What I find is really important about the ERMI is the PCR component. Because when you're working with mycotoxins and you have the ability to say, okay, Aspergillus fumigatus is a gliotoxin producer and you have gliotoxin in, you know, your urine test. And, you know, that's aside the point. I know that these tests are difficult to navigate. It, it gives you something. It gives you something for the client versus if you go in with air testing and you do, you know, you catch something and it's the ASPEN group and it's off the charts, you don't know if that's, you know, a, a benign aspergillus or if it's Humagatus or Niger. So um, it's the application of the ERMI and the identification and speciation that I really, really find important. Now, you, you mentioned urine testing, which is another controversial topic, and I wonder mm -hmm. if you could give us a little more on your take on that. Yeah, so with urine testing, you know, once again, everything is not without its limitations. Everything has a time and a place for use. For urine mycotoxin testing, I find that I'm using it more to inform case management rather than diagnosis. I'm sorry, but if someone comes into my office and they have all of the symptoms of you know, headache and brain fog and joint pain and stabbing neurological pain. And, you know, they were fine before they moved into a home that they know they have mold. I'm going to likely diagnose them with, you know, mold exposure. And going and pursuing a urine mycotoxin test isn't going to necessarily confirm that diagnosis, but it's going to let us know how well treatment is progressing and maybe essentially want to stop treatment. So that's the first case scenario. So with urine mycotoxin testing, like I said, one of the benefits of it is being able to sit down with the ERMI and kind of do that connection to the environmental realm of, like I said, I use the Aspergillus fumigatus and gliotoxin example. Um, you know, and 
the other benefit is, like I said, it informs the case. So it lets us know maybe how well someone is detoxifying, how well someone is pushing this stuff out of their body because it is a urine test. The other thing about these tests is you could essentially do a tissue specimen. So you could use a direct measurement of, you know, nasal washings, sputum, even lymph node tissue, and send those off to see what the mycotoxin levels are. That would be a direct measurement, which is really nice that that is offered. Some of the cons about urine testing is that there's a lot of mycotoxins that exist out there, and these are just testing a handful of them. Um, another issue is that when you're working with these labs, you need to have standardization for some of these mycotoxins. And a test is limited by what standards are available. And so if there's no you know, lab that's providing a standard for this new and novel mycotoxin that's potentially making everyone sick, there'll never be able to be a test that's developed for it. So there, there's limitations on that front. Um, you know, they're expensive. There are some that have the potential to be covered by insurance. And then once again, because it's urine, it's something that's leaving the body, you don't have the ability to tell if a spike in an elevation in the urine is because you've had another high exposure or if it's just because you're detoxing really well. So you always need to make sure to inform your lab results with kind of, you know, the clinical picture of what's happening in their life. Um, one of the other cons of urine mycotoxin testing is we do have mycotoxins in our food supply. And because of this, it's not uncommon to see some elevations of mycotoxins, but because we have a standardized number of what's allowed in our food, our grains, our cereal, our coffee, so on and so forth, um, it doesn't surprise me if someone kind of has a a low level um, amount that's kind of kicking around, especially with ogratoxin and some of the other uh, few, why am I blinking on that? Fusarium? Thank you, fusarium. <laughs> okay. So um, yeah, it's a little, uh, there's pros and cons definitely, but I think understanding the limitations and um, extrapolating that to how you're gonna best apply it is really important. I have a really dumb question on uh, urine testing. What effect does hydration have on that? You know, it would seem to me that, like, my wife drinks about eight or nine bottles of, of water a day, big ones, big quarts, and, and, and so on and so forth. And I drink very, very little. And uh, so I, I just wondered what effect hydration has actually on what you find in urine samples. Does it dilute what's there? That's a good question. Um, so what these labs do is they standardize the sample um, with regards to creatinine levels. So more or less that is considered in this process. So that is not a dumb question. Okay. I, I didn't hear what you said. Standardize it according to? Creatinine levels. Oh, creatinine. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hey, let's, let's talk a little bit about remediation of indoor environments. Um, what... What do you recommend that, that may be above and beyond a, a typical mold remediation that's done according to industry standards? Sure. So, you know, usually I push for the uh, 
post-remediation uh, vacuuming and then followed by kind of the static wipe. Um, the other thing that I encourage uh, people to really pay attention to after is to see if there's any dust in the room. Um, I have had remediations where something has been supposedly under negative pressure and they've gone in and they've done the HEPA vacuum and they've, um, you know, static clinged everything and then you reach on top of the kitchen cabinets and there's a pile of dust up there. So thoroughness is very, very important and I feel like sometimes it, it can get lost in the remediation realm. Oh, it does. There's no question. I just wonder, you know, because I, I always hear that, you know, well, I shouldn't say I always, from certain people within the industry, I hear that standard mold remediation uh, is not appropriate or not adequate for patients who are mold sensitized. And, and it just, it drives me crazy because uh, if they're doing a, a good standard mold remediation, there shouldn't be any dust. It, it, I it think should... that that's the kicker, Joe, is if they're doing a good standard remediation, right. there's any field, there's going to be people who don't take pride in their work. And I'm not saying that that is any of your listeners by any means, but there's going to be physicians that don't care, you know, like there's, there are people who aren't committed to their jobs and aren't committed to outcome. And that's really where I see a lot of field remediation. Um, okay. And, you know, it's nice to have the thoroughness of the HEPA and the static. And But I've seen negative containment fail over and over and over. And now you're just blowing spores and dust into the rest of the house, you know. Um, so it's not so much that standard remediation isn't appropriate. It's standard remediation, excuse me, um, that seems to be ever present in a lot of different um, experiences from our clients. The other thing with standard remediation is, you know, there needs to be some dialogue with these folks about what they think they can and can't tolerate. So I have had folks who um, would prefer and probably do better by just um, the uh, time-based cleaning products. Um, I've had people who just operate with soda blasting and kiltsing. Um, you know, there are definitely fallouts after the fact of being dosed with mycotoxins where people become chemically sensitive. So having a remediation company that has a few different options for remediating can also be um, helpful for these folks. I know this is something that Cliff is interested in. He used to manufacture um, antimicrobials. Do you recommend that? It sounds like time is one of the things that you um, are okay with? Uh, are, are there any products that you find the very mold sensitive um, shouldn't be used? Um, you know, I think that that's outside my realm and I'm really yeah. willing to admit that for you guys, for sure. That's perfect. Go ahead, Cliff. As a medical professional, um, there's one question that you need to ask with uh, time-related products. And uh, it's going to sound crazy to you. However, it's a very important question. And the question is, are you allergic to Novocaine? Okay. If you are allergic to Novocaine, you are allergic to time-related products. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just important. And I think whether it's synthesized 
time-related product or natural time-related product, chemically they're the same. Right. So you're going right. to have, you know, the, but that's a, a very important question that I think needs to be asked. I appreciate that. And that is not crazy. I think a lot of people out there are very excited about essential oils and how it's natural. So it must be safe. And this is coming from a naturopath. Right. The reality is these things have terpenoids and terpenes right. and all right. of these triple Absolutely. bonds that sensitize right. people, right. you know? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So thank you for that. I will start to ask people that. Actually, um, we didn't make a, we didn't initially make a product that was time-based because we actually had employees that were allergic to it. You know, the, oh. the, the, so it, it's like anything else. I, I think there's a place for it. And, um, you know, as you said, uh, there are other things that are in it. And I think what happens is people tend to overlook it and this whole word botanical, I think, um, it's just like kind of way overused. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, I think safety is always a first, you know? Yeah. Um, the one thing I don't want people doing is going in and self-remediating a, I don't want people self-remediating. I want people to be able to pay a professional to keep them safe and to do it correctly. Um, and you know, when people self-remediate, people have a tendency to just want to throw bleach on it or be done, you know, and that's one of the worst things that you can frankly do when you're dealing with someone who's chemically sensitive, you know? I don't disagree. And I actually think from a remediation standpoint that HEPA vacuuming is way, way overused and way, way over recommended. I think you can remove a lot more. Uh, There's a static attraction, particularly in ductwork. Uh, of particular. You know, you could put all kinds of vacuum on it. You can brush it as much as you want. And you look at the ductwork, you know, after it's been cleaned, uh, just some particular that has a static attraction. Yeah. Well, it's like your car. If you've ever gone to one of these quarter car washes, you can spray it all you want. And it still requires some sort of brush in order to break that surface tension that holds the particulate onto the surface. I think most people would be better off much, I think a damp wipe would be much, much better. And, uh, you know, now they have, you know, different types of wiping, you know, dry wiping materials that, you know, that are outstanding. But the key is you need flat pressure on the wall and generally our hands not flat. So it's a good idea to you know, place it over a block of wood or something that has a flat surface. And, you know, I think they'd be much, much better spraying whatever, you know, Detergent and water on the wall, squeezing it off. I think it would be much, much better than HEPA vacuuming in a lot of these situations. See, this is a dialogue that people need to hear and people need to have, including physicians. Like, this is something that it, I, I am appreciative of this very, very much. And this is something that I would love to see you guys over at ICI, <laughs> you know, given, given suggestions and sharing knowledge. Because, you know, if once again, this is dogmatism. If you're not willing to learn and expand what your knowledge base is based off of what other people have to share and other people's best opinion and evidence, you're not going to do a service to anyone. So I really, I really appreciate you highlighting that in probably a very unintentional way, but you know, this is the dialogue that we need to have between clinicians and IEPs. We're hungry for it. And I think both groups um, would really benefit a in business, but also in B in helping helping our clients. Hey, Joe, I think we're going to put her in touch with Dave Mason, I think. Yeah, um, that's a good idea. And, and we'll, we'll Dave, Dave's know, right up your alley. But uh, before we wrap this up, why don't we talk a little bit about I, I, 
ICI, the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. Tell us a little bit about why ICI became, you know, uh, how long it's been around and, and why it was uh, uh, founded, and then uh, maybe a little bit about your role there. Sure. So ICI was started because there was a, a niche that was really recognized that needed to be filled. Um, there were uh, doctors from the environmental medicine realm who really just realized that there were certain things that weren't being addressed appropriately because the tools weren't really widely known and put into practice. So handful of docs, uh, our forerunners in this realm, got together in the beginning and started ICI. And those folks were Dr. Mary Ackerley, Sonia Rappaport, Scott McMahon, uh, Keith Bernstead, and uh, Richard Shoemaker. And so, you know, as time passed, people came and go and things went in flux, um, but ultimately ICI has stayed. And as a group, we're really focusing on bringing together, you know, like-minded individuals and really with a um, cornerstone of respect. That's really one of our, our biggest uh, parts of our mission statement is um, like-minded people who are warm and respectful because that is really something that uh, allows an organization to thrive. And so with that kind of as our core, we then really work together, um, IEPs and clinicians alike, and with that crossover, to really share information about, you know, what we've seen clinically or what we've seen in the field that has been helpful, or, hey, this is a really interesting case. What is your suggestion? What would you take action on here? So we have about currently 218 members, um, and we have about 150 affiliate members, full members and diplomat members. That first group are people who have been in the field for quite some time and you have really um, studied and offer some evidence of continuing and active involvement in the realm of environmentally acquired illness. And then the diplomats are typically clinicians who have had some type of advanced certification or maybe about uh, three years clinical experience in addition to that. And then we have our affiliates and our affiliate members are people whose business or organizations or associations um, provide products and services that can help clients in the field of the environmentally acquired realm. So that's how we currently have our membership structure set up. And when it comes to IEPs, they can either join as affiliates or they can join as full members. And as an affiliate, you have access to our um, base camp. It's kind of an organizational uh, platform where we have references and all of this information available to you. A lot of the latest and greatest research for, you know, studies that are at the spear tip of the industry. And then for people who decide to be full members, we have a listserv. And I really feel like that's where the magic of ICI is because that's where we have clinicians and IEPs dialoguing and talking about their cases, talking, getting information, you know, what the heck do I do? How do I identify a low-dose exposure? I'm new to this realm. You know, does it mean that someone isn't sick if they don't have a 10 times or greater spore count inside their home? So there's just a lot of magic happening on the listserv, and um, it's really cool to sit down and read because you get a lot of passive knowledge. Like I was saying, you know, even the, the tidbit of information that Cliff shared that's something that, you know, passes through the listserv quite often. So I know it's a, a hard sell. We're not a hard sell, a strong sell. But I, I really like being affiliated with ICI a little bit. 
Cliff? No, no, I, I, I think it's a high recommend. I think that we'll spread the word for you. And, uh, you know, because I, I think that, yeah, you know, you, you talked about dogmatism, and unfortunately, there, there's a lot of it, and a lot of it centers around industry standards that, uh, in many ways, are fundamentally flawed and, and keep getting repeated and parroted, and people keep doing it because they're afraid to do something different. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's unfortunate that when, when we look on listservs in our industry, if anyone deviates, that they kind of get stomped. You know, just by you know, just by the herd because it was herd mentality that well, the standard serves this. That, you know, we must follow it, and uh, it's something that's irritated me for quite some time. Well, that's not ICI. The only time that we ever get concerned about dialogue is when you know someone might be mean or unfriendly or unkind. You know, that's one thing that we we don't jive with. But you know, when it comes to open thoughts and free thoughts, you're dealing with these cases of folks who haven't gotten better with dogmatism, you know, and that's, Mm -hmm. that's our population there. We are people who are trying to be in service to people who dogmatism is ultimately hurt. So, um, yeah, I love ICI. You you have an annual conference as well. Yeah. So we just had our first annual conference, um, in carefree Arizona at a, a place called Savannah. We will be announcing our upcoming, uh, conference for 2020, um, probably within the next month or so. We know where it is, but we have to kind of hammer some things out. And usually what you'll see with an ICI conference is we have a lot of phenomenal doctors um, from all around the country coming to speak. And then we also have IEPs who are speaking to kind of bridge the gap and help educate um, you know, these clinicians about what boots on the ground looks like what you can expect, what, what is the proper verbiage to use when you're dialoguing with your clients. So I see that as more and more time comes, I think there will also be a higher likelihood of having some IEPs come and speak with us. The other thing um, that I also kind of want to put out there for people is we have vendor space for these conferences. And there was a handful of vendors last year who were people who were IEPs or who offered remediation services. So it's also something to consider. If you want to get, if you're like-minded and you're really believing in serving the the sickest of the sick and doing great remediations, um, you know, you're going to want to network with physicians who have that population. And ICI is definitely a place to go. So our, our vendor spots fill up fast. And I think we'll also be opening our vendor spots for 2020 in the next coming months. Cool. Very good. Uh, before we go, uh, first I want to thank you. This has been uh, a quick. It just the time went like that, and that's that's a good sign. Um, also, before we go, is there anything you'd like to add, or anything we missed that um, you want to make sure listeners hear before we wrap this up? Yeah. So, you know, as an IEP. I really want to encourage you guys, please don't be afraid to reach out physicians. We need you. Our treatment is not efficacious in the least if someone is still in an exposed home. And if you're someone who feels that you are very thorough in how you diagnose home and you're thorough in your creation of your remediation plan, and if you're a remediation company and you feel that you are thorough as a remediator and you've had a great outcome, reach out to physicians. Go to ICI.org 
pull up the physician panel, look for some physicians that are nearby you and give them a call. Tell them you found them on there and open up that dialogue because we need you where we're left kind of holding our hats in our hands when, you know, we're like, Oh, shucks. Like, how do we, how do we get an IEP? How do we get a good remediator? And there's, we're really trying to cause a groundswell and get a lot of physicians trained in this so we can help more people. But Physicians need IEPs. So please, please, please reach out. And if you ever need assistance in that process, you're also very much willing, uh, able to reach out to me um, at info at Life After Mold or even through the ICI website. Fantastic. Uh, Cliff, anything you want to add before we wrap it up? No, great job. Great job. Thank you. Yes, Thank you Dr. Lauren so Tessier, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Say hello to Milo uh, when you you get time here. But uh, we really appreciate having you. Life After Mold and the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. Uh, This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guest this week, Dr. Tessier. Of course, to my engineer at the controls, John, you got to have faith. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, and most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, uh, we'll be back, by the way, next Friday. I've got Joe Madash coming on. I saw Joe uh, do a presentation last night at the, uh, uh, where were we, in downtown Pittsburgh, anyway, at the, oh, at the Phipps Conservatory in Pittsburgh, actually in Oakland. And, uh, you know, I thought we had had Joe contribute to shows, but he's never been the sole guest. He's with the Hayward Score. So take your HaywardScore.com. And then come back next week, and uh, we'll be back with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.